V-O-P-P, the greatest podcast in the galaxy. Everybody, from near and far, I miss you. I love you. Welcome back. Today I speak with Tyrone Radford. He's the executive director at the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team. Now our history goes back almost 15 years now. We worked together as consultants in the technology field. And what did Tyler do? 10 years ago he said, you know, this technology thing, this ain't, this ain't me. He quit his job, went back to school, and started over working for a nonprofit organization. So today we get a chance to hear about that path from making decent money, working at a place that you don't like, to doing something that you love doing for the world. I hope you guys enjoy this. My man, Tyrone S. Radford. I've seen off dance before, <laughs> but I've never seen a dance like this. I see you're recording me. I'd like to be um, read my rights prior to that. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I just moved the microphone a little further away from the. The other thing is, the other thing is, for whatever reason, I don't know if you'll care, but for whatever reason, your voice sounds like this <laughs> instead of sounding how it usually sounds. Hmm. It's like, That's... hey, my, my name's Tyler. <laughs> let's I love it. Can now we, let's can... keep it that way. I love it. I love it. I love it. No, let's let's um, let me try something. Okay, I'm on a new microphone. Is that better? Or yeah, that, worse? That, yes. No, that's how you usually sound. We are, listen. We only have um, 45 minutes because you know, <laughs> you know that for for the people that that don't know, that's the sweet spot for for podcasts. That the sweet spot, as I've been told, is 45 minutes. So we got was I the one? Was I the one who? Um, <laughs> Yeah, man, we got a lot to get through in that in that amount of time. I don't know how we're going to cover all this stuff. I can only imagine your little um, Google Keep Notes list right now. Um, I'm I'm a little bit frightened, actually. I have nothing actually today. I have nothing. Oh, really? It's all, yes. all all on the top of your head. Yeah, we're going off the dome today. What I what I basically want to do is talk about what you're you're doing today, what your okay. profession is today. But before we get there. We always need a little bit of the backstory, so why don't we go back? We don't have to go all the way back to the, when you were born, but let's go back to like college. Yeah, sure. Well, you're right. I did go to Boston College. I was studying, so I was in the management program, which means you kind of go through a variety of the typical accounting, business management type courses, uh, finance, marketing, all of those kind of things. But my my, I guess they called it specialization or concentration was computer science and information systems. I was always, you know, I remember, I guess, growing up since I was a kid, probably 12, I don't know when it was, maybe 11 or 12 years old and getting my first, I think it was a Packard Bell, like 386 computer. Um, and just remember, I, I just, I like always was fascinated by technology and that, that's when kind of like personal computers were first becoming more available and I think that's what you know I was interested in that all through high school I was disassembling assembling computers you know getting onto those uh, 
dialing into bulletin boards with the 2400 modem you know dial up all that stuff yo um, i have a, <laughs> uh, i'm gonna be cutting you off this entire pod yeah go, go ahead we're, go we're, right we're in the same boat in fact my yeah. buddy had a 386 and it, they were a 386 was so slow like you would put in like you can still do this now you can go to a dos prompt and put in like dir and it gives you like the you type in right. that and it gives you <laughs> everything in the directory the 386 was so slow you would type that in and it would scroll <laughs> up very slowly so my buddy had a yep. 386 yep. and he had dial up and he was involved in all these bbs's and i was like i gotta get involved in all this stuff and managed to somehow talk my parents into into a letting me buy or putting the put a get put together a 486 so it was a little bit oh, faster wow. okay, I, had okay. Dial up. I i dialed into like these bbs's they were like the early days chat room it was like a simple simple system that they put together right. chat only text only no images no nothing i ended yeah. up meeting a, a girl on there i was like a sophomore in in high school i met a girl on there i was like yo let's meet up at a mall i got the vanilla gorilla who had his license to drive us to the mall and meet oh, this girl <laughs> who was like i guess shocked to see that i wasn't white <laughs> <laughs> needless to say the meeting was quite short but uh yeah that's my uh, memory of what did, what did she what did she look like uh i couldn't even she was white i can't even remember it was it was literally like a half an hour meeting and that was the last we saw her i think she blocked me figured out a way to block me yes <laughs> and that was the last time we spoke yeah. Uh, yeah those were those were the days man it was so like i was it's fascinating right because you you're normally it's the first time that you're able to sort of interact with people there's this whole other like world and community that exists online so it was like drawing you to the computer and i think that's that's kind of let we're now in like a hyper extended state of that with yeah. all these you know instagram and all the the late snapchat and all that stuff it's kind of like a super extension of where we came from, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. You know, after BC, I ended up working for a big, big four, I guess a big five, big four consulting firm um, who was recruiting that kind of profile out of BC management people, um, computer science, information systems people. And for all, all the listeners out there, Al and I were, um, were CRM guys, right? Yeah. And that's where, yeah, I got sent to North Carolina and then started, I think we met. Well, I remember, I, I've told you this story before. I remember the first time I saw you, I was, uh, we were, a, my <laughs> company was actually a subcontractor to Deloitte. So we right. had some sort of relationship between the owners of my company and some of the heads of your, at your company and they brought right. them in to help out. So it was me and two other guys from, from my company and we were in these cubes. And uh, I remember you and uh, I think Katie and a couple other people walking in. That's like the new class. We had been there for like a month or so. Right. And I look up. I'm like typing something. I look up and there's this kid who's got this like Samuel Adams haircut from like the 1800s. And I turn over to my boy. I'm like, yo, Mike, check out this Sam Adams haircut kid. Check this out. And that was my first memory of actually seeing you, but uh, I, I, I couldn't even tell you when we first, there was so, that project was amazing. There was so much 
you know, we worked, we worked hard, but there was so much extracurricular stuff going on. So it was impossible not to know everybody on that project. I mean, there was like volleyball after work. There, there was like soccer after work. We did rock climbing together. There was all sorts of events that folks put right. together, you know. Yeah, not to mention you're um, eating three meals a day together and sleeping in the same hotel, yes. hotels, sometimes same hotel rooms. <laughs> that as well, that as well. Yeah, yep. so so you're on this project and you, you were there, I was there 18 months, which was, is a long time for a tech project. And I think you guys, you were there longer. Yeah, we, I ended up being there, almost, I think, two and a half years, almost three years, which is okay. quite a long time in hindsight, I guess. Okay. Um, and then what did you do after? Yeah, then we, so after that, I, you know, I was still working with Deloitte and ended up going on to a couple other projects. I think one was in, um, in Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh for about a year. So, awful city. Awful, awful city. Um, <laughs> yeah, People I, I sec- I that listen to this are going to be so pissed about that, but yo, so depressing. If you think Pittsburgh is depressing, try being in the suburbs 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. <laughs> Supposedly, they have a huge startup community that, that's, that's grown over the past few years. But, man, I was only out there for a weekend, and I was like, wow, is, it, is the sun ever come out? And my host was like, we get it was something like 40 days of sunlight every year. This is crazy. I think that's what dri- ended up driving me out out of Deloitte. Actually, was that, that Pittsburgh? Was <laughs> my last my last project after about five, little over five years with with Deloitte. Um, yeah, and that that's when I was kind of like reexamining what what was coming next in my life. I think after um, you know I had worked the last couple of clients were just sort of this string of companies which were um, you know solid companies, but just no, I guess there, there's just no personal interest in, from my side in the kind of business and line of work that they were right. doing. So it's kind of, it's one of those things where you're, you know, I was still working on technology, which was of interest to me, but the, the mission of the companies I was working for were, you know, could, could have been anything really. And just uh, kind of drove me to rethink where, what I was doing at that point. Yeah. So, so you're reexamining your life and, uh, how much do you think you you had a long-term relationship and it ended around that time how much do you think that contributed to your your change in in scenery yeah that well in terms of timing um let's go through this step by step i guess we were you know you're right i did have a long-term relationship ongoing at that point and i um i still you know still working with deloitte was based in boston and was kind of traveling every week out to out to these clients, whether it was Pittsburgh or Chicago. And my my girlfriend at the time was living in New York. And so I would be going, you know, spending half my weekends in New York, half my weekends in Boston. And it was it was sort of crazy. And so I had made the decision, let me just move down to New York because I'm still going to be either way, I'm still traveling out to out to say Pittsburgh. And um yeah, so I, I moved to New York. I've and uh, I've been here ever since then. I think I'm up on, yeah, just over ten years now. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was. Um, I guess I made that move, and then things kind of deterior deteriorated quickly after that. In the in the next few months after that, um, and so I kind of everything was ending around the same time. I ended up 
um, leaving my job. One of the reasons I moved to New York is I actually got a new uh, new job in New York. Um, that's when I kind of went over to the United Nations headquarters. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, I never, I never actually asked you about that. What was the impetus? Like, why? Why'd you do that? Why do you leave? Because, uh, you know, there's me, there's you, there were a good group of 10 guys that were all in technology making decent, decent cheddar. And nine of us are still in technology making decent cheddar. What made you say, you know what, life change. Besides, okay, so there's the one thing which you already explained, which is there are these companies and I have no feeling about these companies and their mission. So that's the one thing. But then why the United Nations? I mean, the company I was working for in Chicago made sausages and deli meat. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you can get excited about that, but there's it's a special kind of person to really um, to really live and breathe uh, deli meat, right? Meanwhile, meanwhile, that's what your diet diet consists of, basically these days. (laughs) (laughs) Can't can't eat gluten. Can't Uh, have this. Can't have that. Hot dog, though. All we'll, in. we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it was that. That's part of it, right? It's like um, when I joined the UN, I was actually doing exactly the same thing I was doing in Deloitte, which was helping um, helping big organizations get better at technology, get better at their CR customer relationship management systems that manage all their um, their contacts and their their internal processes, right? Oh, I see. Um, and that's exactly what I was doing at the UN. I think the difference for me was number one, it was in New York, but more importantly than that, it wasn't, um, it wasn't deli meats. There was at least this idea of um, how, you know, maybe this organization is contributing to, to positive change in the world. I think it started, yeah, I was kind of self-examining. I'm not sure um, kind of what led to that, but I think it actually at my time at Deloitte, we had this thing called impact day which is you take one day off a year to do sort of community service or do sort of a project outside of your normal work. And I, for me, I was leading some of those projects. It was always something like um, cleaning up a community garden or a park or something like that. So we'd be out there sort of a team of pe- team of Deloitte consultants with trash bags and picking up trash and, or, or painting um, classrooms in a school or so, something like that. And so um, the, I think the connection there is I was really enjoying those. I, I ended up enjoying that one day a year more than my day job. Mm. And I, I kind of made the connection that, well, maybe I should be, you know, there's people who do this full time. They're, you know, working in nonprofits, they're working in um, international organizations. And so I, I kind of saw that move to the UN is, hey, maybe I can get, cl- I'm still going to be doing technology, but maybe I can get a little closer to that. Um, uh, like, it, maybe it's my inroad into more interesting things that the UN is doing. Um, so I was thinking maybe I, once I get in, I could kind of explore and see what else was going on that might be um, kind of more interesting. Was that the first time you had that feeling? You know, you get these like, uh, you get these jolts of electricity every once in a while in your life, right? When, when you hit upon something like that aha moment, was that the first time for you where you had that, um, that sort of feeling with regards to community service? Was it helping out at Deloitte or was there something like in your past high school, younger, you know, that you did where you're kind of reconnecting with that feeling again? Hmm. 
Yeah, you know, I don't know. I think it's that's kind of what I attribute it to nowadays. But maybe, it, I mean, indeed, there could have been something earlier on. I think growing up, we never, you know, I came from a small town in Rhode Island. We never had the opportunity to, um, you know, I grew up in a, a middle class family, but we weren't, we didn't have a lot of money to travel or I, I really hadn't gone much out of my own state um, through high school. And so working at Deloitte was the first time I was actually got to travel. I think it's probably the same for um, a, a lot of people, right? And yeah. it's, so it's like, kind of opens your eyes to like, hey, what's this? Um, it's like the first time I, I remember, I think at the end of college or maybe even Deloitte, it's the first time you're trying like new foods. It was the first time I had sushi. And it's wow. like these things that seem now like super common. Um, it just opened my eyes to this whole new world of like, hey, there's other people out there. There's other places out there. There's other kinds of food out there. And um, I what's, think like- What's ill is when, you, when, you, when you're in that position and then you- go back home it doesn't have yeah. <laughs> so much to me but maybe coming from a small town in rhode island you see like guys you went to high school with that never left and yeah right <laughs> shit doesn't change you know there's no yeah it really doesn't when you go back it's like hey it's uh what's going what's new it's like oh same old same old thing and it's it's really um it's you feel like um an alien or something yeah. like that yeah because like i was just um you know i just came back from a trip to uganda a couple of weeks ago Oh, um, you know, people don't even know where that is. What's exactly. That's crazy. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of like this. You, you really feel like you're a little bit out of place. Um, and even in your home state, which is kind of a weird feeling. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think that's what, drew, you know, moving to the UN was for me um, an opportunity. You know, this wasn't all like pre-planned and very well thought out in hindsight, but it was there was a general plan that, hey, um, this organization has a little bit more global thinking and it has a diverse, it has people from all over the world. I really like that with Deloitte. Um, so this, maybe this is a way for me to explore that on a bigger level. So I kind of saw it as, as a stepping stone to, to new things. Got it. Got it. So now you're there, you're in tech, you're still in technology, but you're in, the, in a place you kind of want to be in. Where, where do you go from there? Yeah, it lasted a year and a half. I've got, um, I, I did some really cool things when I was at the UN. I, I had the opportunity to go out to some um, some of the peacekeeping missions in, in conflict areas around the world. I worked in, um, spent a few weeks in southern Lebanon um, uh, at the peacekeeping mission there. And so I, I met some things. What's going on? Because I, I don't know shit about shit, and I'm sure half the people listening yeah. don't know either. So what is a peacekeeping mission? And Yeah, what, so... So, what, what, you know, the UN sort of was formed after, essentially after, around the time of World War II, coming out of World War II, um, with with this lofty goal, which was to sort of prevent the some of the atrocities that happened from ever happening again, and to, um, to be a forum for countries to actually talk to each other, um, and to prevent some of this type of conflict, right? So... The initial, the UN does a million different things nowadays, but the initial mandate was basically to keep the peace. That was the basic. Um, and so what a peacekeeping mission is, was traditionally um, the UN would deploy these unarmed observers, um, literally guys, you throw on a blue helmet and you literally go stand on or near the border between two warring countries. 
um, to to sort of observe this, um, observe what's happening, and prevent um, hostilities or conflict from occurring. Uh, and if it does occur, uh, to be there to witness and to record. Hmm. So that's how it started out. Now it's completely nowadays it's completely different. So um, when you're in Lebanon, for example, I, I think you know a lot of people know there's been sort of ongoing conflict between some of the um, groups that are, are based in Lebanon, Hezbollah, for example, and Israel. Yep. And so at the, the whole point of the mission in, in um, Lebanon is to basically do exactly that. It's to monitor, it's to, con- to patrol, and to keep the peace. And so when you go to a mission, um, it was really kind of shocking for me the first time because it's a huge, it's, it's a, you're going to a military base basically. Right. Um, so it's not like a tight, you know, it's not like a warm touchy feely um, like thing where it's like, Hey, let's all be happy and hold hands. It's um, you're, you're in an environment where um, there's several dozen countries from around the world who send their send contingents of troops there and are basically doing patrols in the area um, in armored vehicles, in, in tanks, that, that sort of thing. So that's, um, while I was there, you're kind of living and um, working on a, Holy cow. yeah, yeah, it's basically, I mean, it's not in, in that one, it's quite a, it's quite a, a peaceful environment at the moment, at least, at least when I was there, but yeah, it's, it has the feeling of um, there's potential, like it's quite common for, there to be bombings or missiles fired into surrounding villages so it's it's um yeah it's quite a interesting environment to, to <laughs> oh my god uh you, you're so you are as usual so calm about yeah. everything <laughs> like me it's like all right yeah you want me to do it you want to get a fly here oh un peacekeeping cool you get there it's like yeah. tense it looks like a scene from mash you yeah. know, like <laughs> You hear like every once in a while missiles. I'm like, listen, guys, this is really <laughs> cool. But I'm gonna do technology in the Lower East Side. I'll see you guys later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess I, 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 don't know. I didn't have that reaction. I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> per- a perfectly reasonable reaction to have. I think. <laughs> you did Lebanon. What? Where else were you? Yeah, I think that was the, that was my. Um, a lot of the support, I mean, I was based in headquarters in New York, so we were supporting missions all over the world um, in, in a number of different countries. Liberia was another one, but um, most, I think my, my only uh, mission to the field was Lebanon. Okay. Um, we were working, you know, you're on conf- your conference calls are um, to, to staff and uh, military personnel in the missions around the world. So the projects are kind of cool. It's like more, it feels more exciting than, the, the lunch meat business yeah <laughs> um but yeah the, I think, i'm calling um, i'm gonna call the title of this podcast lunch meat <laughs> <laughs> i think that's appropriate yeah uh so you said you were there for like 18 months what what ended yeah. everything yeah i think what it was was just the if you're a person who likes to get shit done and move move fast and do things it's not a good environment to be in Right. Um, all the time there, you know, the UN is a big organization and there's a lot of good people doing really fantastic things. Yeah. Um, I mean, all you have to say is big organization, right? Yeah. Right. Yep. That's exactly what it is. So it's the same as any big company. There's a lot of bureaucracy and things move slowly and there's a, there's a risk aversion. People are afraid to take risks. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. So that's and, for, it, and for the non-corporate people listening to this, just imagine like, just imagine you're going down a river in a, 
in a canoe versus going down a river in a cruise ship and you want to make a turn. You know, it, it takes, right. it just takes, a small organization can do that turn in very quickly uh, in a little bit of time with a little bit of people. Whereas with a cruise ship, you need the whole crew, you need decisions being made, you need to know why, you need to sur survey the whole area, make sure you don't run your boat underground. There's all sorts of different levels of red tape for why that happens. Yep. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great analogy. And a lot of people are on that big cruise ship, uh, just sitting out by the pool as well, not not even trying to turn the boat around. So that's true. That's true. And then yeah. there's liability for those people as well. You know, we don't want to kill anybody. <laughs> we have a lot of yep. people to worry yep. about. So yeah. So so you're in that situation. It's like you came from a consulting firm, which everything is like typically it's a three month project or things move very fast. Decisions are made quickly. You go here. So you, it's, it's like, it sounds like you're almost like dating, you know, you got, you met right. a girl and it was like, ah, it's okay. I kind of enjoy some things. And then you're getting a little bit better. You've refined it a little bit. So now you've, what's the next step after the UN? Yeah. Well, if you've ever, if for anybody out there who's listening, who's kind of left a job before that's a decent job and relatively good paying job, it's a really hard decision to make, right? Because people start questioning your sanity. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean, happened. You, yeah. you question it yourself too. You must. I mean. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's because it's, you're taking a risk. And when I left Deloitte, that was like the first big time I was saying, I'm going to actually quit a job and try something new. So that was kind of scary. And then when I was at the UN, I said, you know, I've done this before. Let me, let me do it again. So it was an easier, a little bit easier. Um, and what, what ended up happening is I had this idea, like I was, I didn't like being in headquarters. I said, I, I saw what was happening out in the missions. I wanted to be closer to the action, so to speak. And so my idea was, let me leave. And if somebody also had advised me when I was in the UN, if you want to stay here, for the long term, you're going to need a master's degree, which I didn't have. Yeah. So I, I was advised, like, go get a master's degree and then maybe come back. So my idea was to just like move to South America somewhere and try to try to um, like go to a school in a Spanish speaking country and improve my Spanish. And then somebody else advised me you should go to a like a, a you know a tops international relations school, which I had not even really heard about. So what in any way, so I ended up looking into it and I applied for a couple of schools in the, in the U S and ends up going back to um, Columbia for a master's degree. Cause um, that was, that was kind of what people were saying was the best option at that point. <laughs> You're a funny guy. <laughs> it's like, all right, what do I want to do? Do I want to go to a, a junior college in Nicaragua yes, yes. or do I want to go to the one of the top Ivy League schools in the country <laughs> yeah I think um I mean, it maybe maybe sounds like presumptuous or something but I really just didn't know I I was too naive I think about um the work I wanted to get into like humanitarian work I thought it was more like hey just go somewhere and show up and like you could probably volunteer or something like, uh, and I kind of thought like going to school somewhere else would help me break into that, which actually is not the case always. Right. So you go to get your master's. It's like, uh, what is that? A two year program typically? Yeah, a two year program. Um, it was two years full time. Did you do any internships by the way, while you were there? Or? Yeah, I did, I did a couple, I did a fellow and like an, a couple, like a consultancy and a fellowship. One of which was um, I got to 
kind of like live out what I was planning to do earlier, which was to spend three months in Bolivia uh, with Save the Children and work on one of their um, education programs in Bolivia, oh uh, which was re- really cool. Yeah, because you get to see like a whole other, uh, another whole other world that you didn't really know existed before that. Okay, so time out for a second. How do you... Yeah, how do you cope with that? How do you see, especially me now that I have little kids, how do you go somewhere, see the children suffering, and then mm-hmm. say, I'll see you guys tomorrow. I'll be, I'll be back for more of this. Yeah, um, I, it's really, it's, it's definitely hard. I think that, that experience in particular was, it was tough because we were working with um, children, children in rural communities that were um, either malnourished or had other health um, had health problems, but I don't know. I think what, what keeps you going is you see that there's uh, people working to make it better. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't at the same time, like I, I, I guess I see it differently in that, Hey, that wasn't that bad of an assignment. There's a lot worse places in the world where oh, there's like God. active conflict and, you know, um, uh, people, you know, people are sort of dying through conflict or violence every day. And that, that wasn't the case there. So it was more like, it was a bit more manageable for me. Mm. Um, so you're seeing some things that are tough to see, but you're also kind of working to make the system better. So it's a, overall, it's a positive experience. But you do feel like an alien again when you come back from those to the States where you're now like, you know, down there, it's like you're having... Your, your choices are just more limited and right. you're like yelling, you go to the store and you're, you know, you get, there's like one, one type of toothpaste, one type of soap, not like 3000. And when you come back to a supermarket in the States, it's a little overwhelming. You're like, what's going on? So the, uh, I, I had a recent pod with my buddy who's an animal activist. One of the feelings I got from it is like, or let me ask you, does it make you angry? The, the kind of um, I don't know, what what's the word juxtaposition of yeah. how how we live here and then how you see and it's not just one country right you've been to a bunch yeah. of countries and you see that suffering yeah I mean I think that's one reason I I like doing the work that I do now and sort of in the humanitarian and development field is that you can you know you're at least working towards something that intends to uh, improve you know get to improve some of those things but yeah it's really frustrating to see the in, i think it's the inequality that that does it whereas like people are uh, even within a country it's hard to generalize you're often in in one moment you're in the capital city where uh, people are living quite comfortable lives in many cases and then you go into sort of a more rural area where you know you could it could be 30 minute or an hour drive and then you're dealing with situations where people are you know, struggling to make ends meet and it's hard to put food on the table once a day or twice a day, that sort of thing. And so it is really hard to see those disparities, right? And it's it's like very, it's, you see it here in the U.S. as well. I mean, I live in New York City, walk down the street and you see very wealthy people um, at the same time, every street corner has somebody that doesn't have a home. So me, it's hard to see in my own city. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's not, fair for me to say this only happens in other places it happens here as well mm-hmm. um so yeah it's tough to tough for me to deal with that anywhere i think the only the only thing i would say on top of that though is there are there are you learn when you go to the third world that there are levels to poverty so like when, yeah, I, went, yeah. when I went to haiti to visit um to visit family for the first time i was i was shocked 
I was shocked to see a homeless person in Haiti. And like, if you, if I were to compare it to a homeless person in the States, it's like the guy in the States is living on fifth Avenue in a high rise, the way he's living compared to a homeless mm-hmm. person in Haiti, yeah. who has like literally no clothes. Like guys walking around completely naked, broke, poor, skinny, underfed. It was, it was shocking, shocking, shocking. Yeah, it's definitely more jarring, right, to see that. I think, like, some of those, yeah, there's always this inequality, but it's, like, more, um, I, yeah, it's more, I, I don't know, more yeah. visible in some ways. Oh, for sure, for sure. Because you mentioned that, too, the 30 minutes drive outside of the city. It, it's it's even, like, more extreme than that, where sometimes you'll have, like, a group of mansions, and right outside the mansion is oh, yeah. poverty, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, in my current job, we work in a lot of like urban slum environments in, in Indonesia and Tanzania, and you see that all the time. It's like literally, um, I have some photos that are ridiculous from, I, I'm, you know, I'm staying in a hotel up on the 15th floor, yeah. um, look out the window and take a photo. And it's like, all, there's like, on, on one side of a wall, it's the hotel, like beautifully landscaped grounds and swimming pool. On the other side of the wall are... Um, basically like a, a shanty town built of of cardboard and plywood and metal scraps yeah. so it's it's crazy to see some of that um it's yeah it's it's really kind of shocking the first time you see it yeah man so let's talk about like getting the process and the struggle to get a full-time job after you're getting your master's yeah, well, for those, I guess, if, yeah, it wasn't immediate, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> it's tough to make a sort of career transition, and there was a lot of kind of um, jobs that held me over in the in the short term, one of which was uh, lifeguarding. I think you, I told yeah. you about that. Yeah. So I, I worked as a lifeguard in New York City public pool system. Uh, so kind of an interesting, um, interesting gig. But um there was a lot of those kind of short-term things uh, for about six months after I graduated. It's so crazy to me. Like you, you're looking for a job that pays less than what you were making before you went to get your master's and that you really want, right? You really, something that you really want, you're putting all your effort into getting these jobs and there's just nothing available and you have to, uh, yeah. You know? Yeah, lifeguarding wasn't so bad, um, but I I will say, I, one of the things actually I wanted to bring up is that I think there's this there's uh, this misperception out there that you know I I work in a humanitarian organization right now, and there's a, a lot of people. It's this whole field that kind of people don't really know about, and one of the perceptions around it, I I've, I think, is that people view it as a bunch of like you know, it's largely volunteer-led. There's a lot of volunteers, kind of uh, do-gooder types. Um, but I think what people don't realize is that it's the field has actually become quite professionalized and it's made up of uh, professionals that come from many different backgrounds. Uh, like the, the people I work around all have master's degrees and are coming from um, careers in finance, in information technology, in business management and consulting. Um, have done like multi, multi, multiple years of leading uh, project management in the developing world. So that to me, that's something that's important to stress, right? Because to get, to get into this field that I'm working in, it's actually quite professionalized and quite competitive. Oh, um, I see. 
that there's a lot of you're working with and competing for jobs against professionals. Um, so it's it's um, yeah, curiously enough, um, not often a high-paying field, but it's it's quite a professional field. I see, and I guess because it's like a lot of these organizations are nonprofits. The money that they get is like either from donations and from grants. Right. So your, right. your supply is a lot less too. In order to yeah, that, that's them. right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are some big, or definitely some big humanitarian organizations out there who are doing quite well in terms of funding. But you're right. Most of the dollars are coming from um, either individual donations or government grants or foundation grants, and which means yeah, there's always pressure to. Um, be super efficient with spending and there's like very little um, sort of buffer or wiggle room in, in budgets, right? So it, it makes it for a really competitive environment. And, and it, I mean, it's good in a way. It makes that organizations uh, work in a way that's not always, but pretty lean in general. So you, you have sort of just enough people to get the job done, but it can be really frustrating as well. How many jobs again did you apply to before you landed your job? About 100, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that, I, oh, man, this makes me feel better as I am in the position where it's <laughs> time for me to start looking for a new job and I've only applied to a few places and haven't gotten any, many positive responses. That, wow, that you're a durable dude. <laughs> to do yeah. like, all right, we're at 50, haven't heard anything yet, let's keep going. Yeah, I well, I will say, you know, out of that hundred, it wasn't just blindly putting out applications. There was a bit of a process to it, and I did get quite a few calls back on those. So I, I did have probably like out of those hundred, maybe ten or so, either interviews or discussions or some some form of follow up. I was looking for sort of looking around, see what was out there, and then that was the time when Hurricane Sandy hit New York in 2012 what ended up happening is there was this huge response like many many communities in new york were underwater in in brooklyn queens staten island so i ended up getting um volunteering with the american red cross for a little while and i ended up getting uh picked up as to lead one of their recovery programs throughout the boroughs of new york city okay it was kind of interesting because i always envisioned uh after School that hey I'd be immediately deployed internationally. Oh, and, and you're and you're right in your backyard. Yeah, I, that's the strange thing. We ended up getting. I mean, it's kind of no nobody could have predicted it, but we had the second largest natural disaster behind Katrina to ever hit the U.S. Oh, I didn't realize so, it was that big. Yeah, yeah. So it was in terms of like economic impact and, and people displaced from their homes. Yeah, <sighs> second to Katrina. So. There was literally hundreds of thousands of people displaced. So it was, and many of them were out of their homes for six months or a year or, or many, several years. But yeah, it was pretty crazy. And it was, it was kind, of, kind of unexpected, but that's sort of how I, my first sort of full-time gig outside after um, the master's degree. Gotcha. I remember writing a uh, recommendation letter. Oh, no, I don't think I did for this organization. I did for your condo. It wasn't for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, though. You helped me, you helped me uh, you know, get, make sure I could get actually good with the, Get good with the co-op, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we're in good now, and I'm still, I'm still uh, living in the same place. So nice, nice, nice. So, yeah, so what was your introduction to your organization and, and tell the, the folks about the organization? 
we, you know, after the Red Cross, I, I was doing a couple of consultancies with other organizations and then I, I had the opportunity to, I saw this thing pop up that looks like it would kind of combine my work in technology with my work in on the humanitarian side. And was that always, uh, sorry for cutting you off, was that always the goal of yours or was that like, did you have different options? Was there, I can either do technology and help out or I can go full, full blown, go to Uganda and just be that guy, you know, in, in the war camp helping out. Yeah. I mean, there's different, I, I would say like in our sector, there's different subspecialties. So there's some people who deal with like water and sanitation, like getting drinking water people. There's, there's others who deal with like food distribution. There's others who deal with shelter and settlements. Um, and so technology is becoming one of those things where it used to be its own sector like hey there's the the technology guys in a humanitarian setting but now it's i I think we're getting to the point where there's no more like tech is not its own thing it's just something that everybody does within their own work so it's like no longer do you need to be a technical specialist it's like you just need to know how to use excel in your job whatever you're doing and so the organization I'm working with now is kind of like helping other organizations to get to that point where they have the skills internally to be able to, um, to manage um, like humanitarian relief. So what I, what I do in a nutshell is um, how often do you use Google maps on your phone? All day, every day. I mean, Waze bought, they were purchased Waze, um, you know, sold to Google. So I use Waze, but yeah, basically. Yeah. So I think that your, you know, your listeners by now know that your family comes from all over the world, right? Your mom's from Haiti, your dad's from Guinea, if I'm correct. Yep. Equatorial yep. Guinea, yep. Imagine going to Equatorial Guinea, going out into the countryside and opening up Google Maps. What do you think is going to come up? <laughs> yeah. Who knows if it even shows up? <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, the, um, that's the whole problem. It's a, it's a problem people don't know exists, but that's the, that's the kind of work we do. So... Um, our organization is called Humanitarian Open Street Map Team. We basically go to the places that are most at risk of disaster or have very high rates of, of poverty or kind of the least developed areas of the world. Um, that could be like refugee camps. It could be slums or informal settlements. And we help to get those places onto the world map. Often if you go there and kind of open up your favorite mapping app on your phone, whatever it is, if you have an iPhone, if you have Google Maps, you'll see that the the place, you'll see a blue dot and you'll see everything around you is completely gray. There's nothing on the map. So why is that a problem, right? So the the problem occurs when you have a massive disaster, like think think back to Haiti's earthquake in 2010, right? right? You need to get, there's people trapped under buildings. You need to get food and water out to people who need it. You open up Google Maps and you see a big gray area. Yeah. What is? What do you do with that? Right? It's like it's. It makes it impossible to make decisions and to, and to operate. So, yeah. So what we do is we work with a community of 150,000 volunteers all around the world. We give them satellite imagery, kind of like what you would see in Google Earth or something similar. And they basically trace what they see. They trace the buildings, they trace the roads. And through that process of digitizing things, um, they help to build a world map. And then that map actually gets used by responders on the ground who are responding to disasters like earthquakes or floods or, or wildfires or hurricanes. 
they use that map to actually get out to the people who need help and to figure out um, not only how to navigate there, but to use it for analysis. For example, um, they could see precisely how many residential buildings are in an area um, surrounding a volcano that's erupting. So there's a, a whole lot you can do, but you're kind of flying blind without that data. And that's really what we do is help organizations to get that data. Wow. So, so it's like an overlay on top of Google Maps. So let me ask you, is there another level on top of that? So you know how like when you use Waze, it'll tell you you're using Google Maps, but it also tells you police officer ahead. It tells you like pothole yeah. in the road. It tells you, so is there another layer on top of that? where like um where where can i go for triage where can i go for like if there's an emergency is there a hospital is uh, yeah right right yeah so we what we do is so the platform we're using it's it's actually completely separate from google maps it's called open street map it's you can you can check like if you go to osm.org or um, you can do it on your phone or, or laptop but basically looks really similar to Google Maps, but it's a completely separate um, application, separate separate platform. And that, the, the thing that makes it different from Google, it's kind of like, if you know how Wikipedia works, where basically anybody can go into Wikipedia and edit articles and contribute information, right. that's how OpenStreetMap works. Anybody can go and edit the map and make it better. So if you, if you don't like what you see or your house is missing from the map, you can go and add it onto the map. Got it. And, so that, that's kind of what we're doing. And we're, you're right, we're building that base layer, the roads, the buildings, um, the hospitals, the schools, the, you know, it could be anything, shops, um, that sort of thing. But then other organizations, um, there's other tech organizations that work with us who then have built like apps on top of ours that can do things like you're talking about. So in the case of the Haiti earthquake, we worked with this other organization called Ushihidi, um, who's, who is a Kenyan company. And they uh, basically built an app who, that people could send in a text message um, requesting help. Like somebody could text in and say, I'm trapped under a building or I, um, I don't have food at this location. And then that would kind of put dots on top of our map so people could see where those requests were coming from. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's really cool. It's this kind of whole world that um, people don't really realize it exists, but yeah, it really, you know, getting that sort of base information in place is really, really helpful in times of disaster or crisis because it, it helps um, helps the organizations who respond to actually know what's going on and to make decisions in a, in a timely manner. Yeah. So here's a question for you. You're a nonprofit. How do you receive funding? How do you how do you run? Because you're you're in charge of the budget as well, I assume. You're, yep, right, right. You're, what is your title, yes. by the way? Are you CEO, COO? <laughs> Yeah, I'm well. We in the nonprofit world, it's called it's this similar, but it's called executive director. Usually. Okay, okay. Um, which means, yeah, you're responsible for a bit of everything, really, and um, that that goes from like our, our overall strategy to our fundraising to our um, to just how how we operate and how we um, everything from hiring to planning projects to all that stuff. But we have a good team now and people help with it. But yeah, indeed, our our funding comes from quite a few different places. We have uh, individual donors who've been really generous with us. Um, that's actually, you know, people who give anywhere, you know, $5, $10, $20 um, a year or a month. Um, th that makes up a, 
you know, it's about 10% of our revenue, I would say, and the, the remainder is coming mostly from uh, from grants or contracts that we get. So we, we also act as a little I'm bit shocked. of a consultant. I'm actually shocked by that. I thought the number would be much more in terms of uh, mm. individual donation. Individuals. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's actually quite low for us. Um, it's higher for some other organizations like Doctors Without Borders, for example, would be almost opposite. Most of their money is coming from individual donations. But on our side, yeah, we do a lot of uh, project-based work. So an, another bigger NGO or organization will hire us to map out an area uh, where they're working. And so we develop that kind of as a contract, like a fee-for-service. Oh, okay. um, so a lot of our revenue actually comes from those types of uh, agreements or contracts. Okay. Okay. And then, so so one is people like me, regular sh- Joe blows like me. Two is the the work you're actually doing, like people actually putting in hours and 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 getting paid for, from that contract. Right. And you had mentioned right. government grants before too. Is yeah, that's right. That's the other piece. So the, sometimes there's larger grants which are less. They're a little bit less restrictive in terms of you know you're not necessarily getting paid to deliver something specific. It's more like um sort of general support for your mission. I see. Um, and so those are great to get, but we have fewer of those. But yeah, that's that's another piece of where the money comes from. Yeah, it's, it, indeed, it's this whole other world. It's like completely different from um, fundraising in the or, or um, business development in the corporate world because it's a lot of it is relying on these kind of charitable gifts from other organizations. Mm-hmm. And then for the government grants, is do you have do you guys have a grant writer on site, or are you the grant writer? Do you have to? Yeah, we don't we don't have a full time person, but we have sort of um, a part what we call a partnerships person or business development. So part of her role is to, among many other things, it's to develop some of these relationships. And a big part of what she's doing is actually corporate relationships. So we have a lot of companies who volunteer with us. I mentioned. You know, we have over a hundred thousand volunteers, and so a lot of those are company, you know, big uh, corporate entities who will do volunteering days with us. So they'll come and say, "Hey, we want to do like a, you know, the CSR or corporate social responsibility is really big these days." And so they'll say, "How can we give back to the community?" Well, we're going to have all our volunteers come and map uh, for a day or for an hour during their lunch breaks. So essentially, and, these are the same kind of folks that you were when you were at Deloitte and you were yeah, doing yeah, one, that's one right. Here, okay. I that's was wondering right. how you get yeah. like 150,000 people worldwide to be a part of this and that not yep. make, yeah. make sense. Yeah, a lot of it's through partnerships. So like university groups have, there's a lot of student groups who volunteer with us. And then, yeah, corporates, we have a couple of companies who are you know, donating thousands of volunteer hours with us right now, which which is pretty cool. So there, a lot of them will like map out, you know, depending on where their office locations are around the world, they'll do mapping work in those locations um, and, and give, it, give it like a day or a day a month or something like that. Here's an open question for you. As an organization, I wish we could do X better. What would that be for you guys? Yeah, I think you and I were talking about this earlier in the year, right? I think we're we're doing a lot of we've made a lot of um, improvements over the past three years, but the things that sort of um, that we still struggle with or we could get better at are number one, telling our story. I think so. We, we work in a very technical field in a way, so like this this whole thing around data and maps and GIS and geospatial, it can be really techy. 
But if, if you hear the stories behind it of how having a map is actually improving somebody's life uh, on, on the ground, then it's really powerful. There's a lot of impact there, but we're not really great at um, surfacing those stories that are happening around the world and telling them to our, our partners and our donors. So we're trying to get better at that. That's one thing that we struggle with right now. And I, I think we're, it's a big priority for us. And it, we, you and I talked about this a couple months ago around like what's our, what's our pitch deck sort of thing? What's our right. story that we'd be telling? And so that's something we're definitely um, trying to get better at this year. So the other question that I had written down is um, I remember hearing maybe even back as far as when we were working together, because I, I donate on, on and off throughout the years. Right. Yeah. And thank you for that. Yep. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I don't want that really. I'm going to have to cut that out of the pot. I don't want people knowing my business. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, The big thing is that that I learned back then is how if I give $10, how little of that at, in some organizations actually goes to where it needs to go to, right? I think it's like yep. in some organizations, it can be as low as like 10%. So if I give 10% to, I don't want to put anybody on blast, but let's say the Red Cross, because everybody right. knows who the Red Cross is. Yep. Only 10% of that is going to like helping children or whatever. And 90% is administrative going to who knows what, what else. So Correct. How does that work for you guys? How much, uh, I'm putting you on blast, but if I give $10 to your organization, how much is going to making maps or to... Yeah, so I have I kind of three comments on that. Number one is the simple, so our number is 15%. That's our, that's yeah. our administrative rate, which means that 85% of your money goes to our, to um, actually our programs on the ground. Gotcha. So it's quite a, we have a fairly low administrative rate. The, the 15% is required to keep the lights on and run our organization in, in a professional way. Right. Um, so most of your money is going there. What we've done over the past couple of years is for our year end fundraising campaign, we've switched it to a hundred percent. So what we've said is every dollar donated goes out to our field programs. Um, wow. And will eat the cost of the rest of it of keeping the lights on so to speak wow so um so and i think why, it, why was that decision made um we wanted to make a more compelling case to the donors and not have that question even be an issue that's, oh, that's really, yeah so we, we wanted it to be clear that you don't need to worry about this every dollar that you give is going to end up um, doing something meaningful on the ground it might be training somebody to might be training a refugee to map their refugee camp, for example. It could be, um, you know, it could be helping to collect data in a place where there's no map. So uh, anyway, we, we made that decision, I think, two years back that 100% of funds raised would go back out. And so, I mean, the, I guess the other, the third comment there is, I also feel nonprofits are under this incredible pressure that's it's a little bit unfair, where in the private sector, nobody would question that you need to run your business effectively and you need to hire people to do that. You need, you need marketing people, you need sales people, you need finance people, um, you, need, you need project managers. We need all those same things in, the, in a nonprofit. Um, it's run, just as a business would run, we need all those functions. And by saying, by coming up with this arbitrary number of, hey, um, you can only spend 10% of your donations on doing that, it sort of arbitrarily restricts you in a way that's not really fair, which means that you can't always 
run your organization in the most effective way because somebody somebody randomly said 10 percent's the number you know right i just thought of another question in your dream of dreams what's like your your loftiest dream for for your organization mm-hmm. what would be amazing if we could, if we could get here amazing still work to do but amazing yeah, well, we're trying to think big. We're doing that. We're sort of doing a strategic planning process right now. And one of those, we've talked about that within our team. Like, what's our what's our end game? When do we say, okay, we can shut down? We've accomplished our mission. <laughs> oh, I didn't even realize that was a a possibility. Yeah. yeah so, um, I mean, it's it's a it's probably a ways off. But I I think what we're trying to do is three things. Put number one, um, map the world. As I said, um, there's many places in the world that are still not. These are places where hundreds of thousands, um, millions of people live that just don't appear in any map anywhere. So we're trying to cover those areas. And we have this goal to put 1 billion people on the world map um, by 2021. Wow. So, yeah, so I think that's pretty, um, it's it's very ambitious, but definitely, you know, we're working a lot with like machine learning and AI now to do this faster instead of having only humans doing it oh you're talking like like drones and stuff out there yeah drones but also like if we have satellite imagery can we have um a computer pick out the buildings instead of having a human trace them like they would in a coloring book so stuff like that to make our process faster got it Um, and yeah so that that's the big the big number and the other part of the goal is so that Oh, before it's you not, go to the other part. So when you say 1 billion, does that mean, are you meaning to say that, let's say Google Maps right now maps maybe 500 million folks? And since you're not in Google Maps, you're, you're kind of a separate or entity, yeah. right? Right now you're at, do you have a number? Is it like 250 million right now? And yeah, we, we, have, we have some rough numbers. So like there's, you know, the world population is, has exceeded 7 billion now. I think we're right. up to 7.7. Yeah, there you go. Coming up to 8 billion. Yeah, we have some very rough estimates. What we know is that we, we've looked at the countries that are most vulnerable to disaster, most at risk. And over the past few years, we've had this project called Missing Maps, which is to fill in the, the most vulnerable areas of the world. And so we've, we've, um, coming up on uh, over 150 million, coming up on 200 million uh, people maps in the past few years. And so that's where we're trying to get is to take that from uh, 100, 200 million up to a billion people. Got it. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the plan over the next three years or so. Okay. So that's number one, map the world. What, what's number two? Yep. Well, what good is a map if people don't have access to it? So we, what we're trying to do now is make sure the big NGOs like the Red Cross, like Doctors Without Borders, like um, the UN, the World Bank, the other international organizations actually have access to what we're doing and know how to use it. So a lot of our work is focused on helping them to do that. That's through our kind of training and consultancies and partnerships that we have. And number three is that anybody can contribute to the world map. So we want to make it as easy as like for you and I to to open up Google Maps or, or Apple Maps on our phones or Waze or whatever, we want to make it just as simple for a refugee living in northern Uganda to um, contribute to the map um, from where they're living. And there's a, a bunch of ways we're doing that, but 
number one is more and more people have smartphones and internet access nowadays so we're, we're helping people to just basically get some of the apps they need to make edits to the map mm-hmm. and um, number two is we have a lot of like um, kind of old school low tech ways they can contribute so we have things like they could they can print out a map and then actually draw on it kind of annotate it, and then we can scan it back in and it becomes part of OpenStreetMap. Um, so we, we have all these ways to do it but the, the big picture goal is make it easy make it such that anyone from school children up to 80 years old can basically be contributing to our mission so we want to grow that 150,000 volunteers you know get that up into the over a million volunteers in the coming year damn that's awesome that's fantastic hey listen you know we're at a, an hour and 20 minutes now so you should cut like... you should cut me off because i i personally <laughs> I see the value in, in getting all the details. Some people like to cut and chop and shorten things to to millennial tidbits and bites, but not me. I want the whole right. story. I want everything. I guess lastly, um, where can we find you guys? How do we find you? How do we get information about Open Street Maps? So the, give us the give us the name. Give us where we can find you. Give us social media. Give us the whole nine. Yeah, sure. So the, thanks for the shout out. I guess the easiest way, you know, if you just want to read more about us, if you want to come and do some mapping with us, you can do it on your lunch break. It takes 20 minutes um, to learn. You can check it out. Um, but basically, just go to our website. It's hotosm.org. So hot, like um, the temperature. Yeah. <laughs> um, OSM, like openstreetmap.org. And you can get information on how to, how to volunteer, we do these things called mapathons, which is like a like a marathon where you have thousands of people running together towards to reach the finish line. We get hundreds of people sitting in a room together looking at satellite imagery and creating maps. So awesome. come come to a mapathon. We have them all tri-state area all the time. There's lots of ways to get involved. Awesome. And also you can go right to hot osm.org and hit the donate button as well you can donate via paypal you can donate via venmo i think you can donate have we, yep. have we figured out uh, cryptocurrencies yet or no we're, we're still we're still working on that we've okay. had some challenges in getting uh, a provider <laughs> yeah. to work with us i got yeah. you i got you but there are many ways to donate and it's a fantastic cause and i also wanted to talk to you about the about what you're doing because a lot of people myself included have been doing work in a specific field for many years and you know have asked those questions should i be continuing here for another 20 years or should i do something else and it's good to talk to somebody who actually went through the pain of making that change and and following through with that change and is actually working in a field that uh, gives them joy or gives them satisfaction and and makes them feel like they're they are making a difference in the world so it's great and i hope when they listen to this or can appreciate that yeah thanks al i think that's that's right it's definitely sometimes it's a hard decision but there's kind of stepping stones to get there and i've at least in my own experience i've found um it's it was scary at times but then you end up um things end up working out for the or, or at least kind of leading you to maybe on unex- slightly unexpected places but it, it's it's generally been positive so awesome well, here's the last final question for you um what do you say to people in terms of like getting people to to donate 
Well, I posted something on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago, which asked the question, um, because I was reflecting on this myself. I'm just going to take a personal perspective, not talking from on behalf of my organization. But like, I, I look back at 2018 and I said, what did I, what did I do good in the world this year? Part of that is, did I give, there's different ways to contribute. You can give your time or you can give your money. Those are two of the big ways. And then for me, um, you know, most of my time is devoted to my full-time job. I don't have a lot of time outside of that. I, I care about a lot of other causes but I don't have a lot of time to give to them. So I try to say, let me, you know, there's certain things I could give a donation to. What I do, so basically, if you've done any reading on sort of philanthropy, there's some of the world's wealthiest people have committed to give away 50% or even 100% of their total um, uh, net worth or right. during their life. Um, like B Bill Gates and Warren Buffett were leaders in this area. Right. And they've, they've signed commitments and pledges toward that. And so what I said, th there's a, there's a lesser number. If you're not um, a, a sort of a wealthy billionaire listening in, there's sort of another target, which you could commit to is 1%. And so I asked the question on LinkedIn, how many people gave 1% of their income this year to charity? Right. And what I found was that, um, a lot of crickets. A lot of people liked the post, but there was very few um, people commenting on it. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was more, it, you know, I didn't necessarily need to hear the answers. It was more for self-reflection. I was just curious. I wanted to get people thinking um, in terms of like, what, are, what did they do over the past year? So I, I did not meet the target myself, mm. um, but it's kind of, it's a good guideline. And maybe something I'd suggest is, um, can we all, work to get towards that number. And, and like you said, it doesn't have to be any specific charity. Um, there's a couple of websites out there that'll actually let you compare. If you don't know what cause you care about, there's some websites that'll let you kind of compare the effectiveness of charities and, and find a good one. But I would suggest like, can you try to get towards that number or whatever number works for you in your budget, but make a goal and actually give some of your time or some of your money towards making uh, towards that cause. What I do personally is I like to do it on my birthday, um, which or, or on sometimes on a holiday like Christmas or New Year's Day. For me, it's it's a way to say, um, I don't know, like here's my here's my gift back, and it makes me feel I don't know, it makes me feel good. I get joy out of doing yeah. that. Yep, same, so, same. For me, it's always it's always been if I've come into some money. Let's say like I. You know, yep, yep. I bought Bitcoin at a certain price and it went up and I sold at a higher price. I'll take some of those profits and I'll, I'll um, you know, donate them somewhere. But it's, yeah, a, it's, absolutely. it's a good thought. You know, we, we do these things that are kind of, they're not mandatory, but uh, you automate them like um, 401k. People will put like a 10% number on that and it'll come out of your... Yep your salary 10% pre-tax. So it's just something that pops into my head that maybe everybody can do is to figure out a way and maybe I'll, I'll research it and I'll, I'll describe yeah. it in my intro is to figure out a way to just do it automatically. Give 1% of your salary every two weeks to an organization that you, that you, that you enjoy, you know? So, yeah. And I, and I, I think it's a great idea. Like most of them nowadays have recurring plans. So you can, right. you can go on the website once, sign up and have something deducted monthly. So it's really, it's really easy to do. And I would encourage you to give my personal, if you want my personal opinion, I would encourage people to find a small organization actually, rather than a large one. Mm -hmm. um, because 
you can actually um, kind of go along for the ride with the organization a little more and see right. um, tangible results. And often, like, if you're only able to give $20 or $50, sometimes that's it's a small amount for a large NGO that's raising um, tens of millions of dollars a year. But if you're giving it to an organization whose budget's like $100,000 for the year, um, a $50 gift could be like a massive, um, you know, a very, very appreciated gift. So I'd encourage people to find local organizations or ones that are um, doing really cool things. Um, and because they'll, they'll actually talk to you and tell you what's going on and what's happening with your gift. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um I used to donate to um Jesus I can't remember the name of it now but it's basically teachers who who uh, belong to poor school districts and don't get okay. all surprise oh, um, donors choose donors choose yep that's it and so a lot of the times when you do that they'd find your name and your address and the kids would send like uh, thank you yep. letters or pictures of uh, them using what what you donated which is very nice so. Yeah, yeah, that's a cool site to check out. Yeah, it's very cool, and it feels good. It does feel good to feel like you're, like you said, there's time or there's money. So maybe you don't have the time. You have kids, you're too busy, you're running around too much, and you don't have any time to, to spare for that right now in your life. So if you don't, then spare, spare some of that cheddar in your pocket instead of buying that medium mocha froca latte from from. <laughs> Dunkin Donuts or from Starbucks and using it to help help somebody out who needs it. So that's my two cents and I'll get off my soapbox. And I just want to say thank you for you, Tyler, for giving me your time. I always appreciate that. And uh, we'll talk soon, man. Thanks, Al. It was great, great chatting with you. Um, thanks for getting into all the details we'll <laughs> over 45 minutes brother double the yep. time we are at yep. one hour 29 minutes and 45 seconds and i'm not <laughs> cutting it we're making it double the time i love it <laughs> <laughs> i'll talk to all you right. soon man take it easy thank you all bye right. bye